0: Radio Detectives, and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash detectives. Today's program is brought to you in part by the financial support of our listeners. You can support the show on a one-time basis by mailing a donation to Adam Graham, P.O. Box 15913, that's P.O. Box 15913, Boise, Idaho, 83715. You can also become one of our ongoing Patreon supporters for as little as $2 per month by going to patreon.greatdetectives.net. And I want to welcome our latest Patreon supporters, Laura at the Detective Sergeant level of $7.14 or more per month, and Ken at the Shamus level of $4 or more per month. Thank you so much for your support. It's really appreciated. Now let's get into this week's episode of Dragnet. The original air date, September 3rd, 1949, and the title is Eric Kelby. And now,
1: here's another in NBC's great parade of new shows.
2: Gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent.
1: NBC brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A man's wife has suddenly dropped from sight. On the surface, it appears only as a routine missing person's case. You start to investigate. Suspicion grows. There is evidence of possible foul play. Your job? Find the woman or find
2: her murderer. Dragnet. The documented drama of an actual crime investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action.
3: It was Wednesday, September 15th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working a day watch out of homicide. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way back from lunch, and it was 12.56 when I got to room 42. Homicide.
4: Hi, Joe.
5: Waiting for you. Hi, Ben,
3: Hal. I hear you got something for us.
5: Hey, here's a report right here. Gardener by the name of Eric Kelby called in day before yesterday. Said his wife disappeared from their home out in the valley Sunday night. Says he thinks she left him. That happens every day, Bargetti. Not this way, it doesn't. Uh, Walsh and I went out yesterday to interview the guy. story doesn't add. Why not? Uh, none of her clothes are missing, none of her luggage. She even left her pocketbook behind, full of money. Found out from the neighbors a missing woman as a 17 year old boy by a former marriage. So what? An only child. Mother dotes on the kid. Shouldn't
3: even say goodbye to him. How did this Sherry Kelby impress you?
5: Pretty grouchy with Walsh and me. No cooperation. Wants to find his wife, doesn't he? I don't know if he does or not. It's no help, I'll tell you that.
3: Can I see that report a minute now?
2: Here you are.
3: Agnes Trumbull Kelby, age 39.
5: Kelby's a second husband. First one died a little after the boy was
3: born. Mm-hmm. Disappeared Sunday night from her home, 546 Belasco Road, between 7 and 8 o'clock. When did Kelby call in?
5: Monday afternoon. Said he thought his wife might be spending the night with her sister. When he found out she wasn't, called us. Did you meet the boy while you were out there, Borghetti? Yeah, that's another thing. Kid came riding in on a bike while we were talking to one of the neighbors. Tried to talk to him, but the old man came out hustling him inside the house. Then he starts eating us out. Hmm, what'd he say? Told us it was our job to find his wife, not to go prying into his stepson's affairs.
4: Well, that's a new slant. How about her friends and relatives around here, Al?
5: Any besides her sister? Mm, Walsh located a couple of rats. I don't think he's checked them yet, though. I'll tell you, boys, this is one I'll bet on.
3: Maybe. You got the names of Mrs. Kelby's relatives? Oh, yeah.
5: yeah right over here. Sure wish we had a chance to talk to that boy.
3: Yeah. How's it feel to you, Ben?
4: Mm, I don't know. Notice anything else funny about the guy, eh?
5: Huh? Uh, I don't know. Here's those names, Joe.
4: Thanks. Kelby
5: was upset, all right. For some reason, he didn't strike me as reacting the way a normal guy reacts when his wife disappears. All right, Al. How would you react? Mm -hmm. Bargetti's worrying again. Oh, now listen, boys. It's no fooling matter. This is one I'll bet on. It's a homicide.
3: All right. How about a copy of
5: this report? Yeah, uh, where'll I get the phone? Missing person's Bargetti. Who's that? Oh. Uh, yes. Yes. About what?
2: Oh sure.
5: All right, sir. Four o'clock. Yeah. Goodbye. That was Kelby's stepson. What do you want? Think something's happened to his mother.
4: In
3: police work, missing persons detail is not a department separate in itself. It is organized as a part of the homicide bureau. According to Bargetti, who took the call, the boy said he suspected his stepfather and he didn't want him to know of any meeting between him and police officers. He would meet the officers that afternoon at 4 p.m. in a restaurant on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Fairfax Avenue. At 3:15, Ben and I left the office and drove out to the meeting place, the Dairyland Fountain and Coffee Shop. We arrived there at 3:45. At eight minutes to five, the Kelby boy still had not arrived.
4: Youngster's not very prom.
3: Let's wait a little while longer.
4: Yeah. Smoke? Yeah, thanks. Want some more coffee?
3: No, thanks. I guess the boy isn't going to show. Think something's happened? Fifteen minutes after we left the coffee shop, we drove up in front of the gate of the Kelby Nursery on Belasco Road. The house itself was set well back on the property, which covered about four acres. The entire nursery was surrounded by a six-foot steel wire fence, and it looked like almost every available foot of ground inside was planted with some kind of a flower or a shrub. Kelby met us at the gate.
4: Yes? What do you men want? Police officers. Are you Mr. Kelby? Yes. What do you want? Well, if you'll shut those dogs up
3: for a minute, we'd like to ask you a few questions.
4: I'm busy now. Can't you come back tomorrow?
3: It's pretty important, Mr. Kelby. I think we better talk right now.
4: All right, if you have to. Red! Giant! Down! You too, me. quiet. All right. Now, what do you want? Mind if we come inside? These watchdogs of mine are pretty vicious. We can talk here at the gate.
3: All right, Mr. Kelby, this is Sergeant Romero. My name's Friday. We've been assigned to look into your wife's disappearance.
4: Oh. Did you find anything yet? Nothing definite. Maybe you can help us. Would you tell us exactly what happened the night your wife disappeared? What do you mean, what happened? Well, when did you last see her? When did you first notice she was gone? We finished up Sunday night dinner about 7 o'clock, and I laid down for a nap. Agnes went out on the front porch for some air. Woke up a little before eight and went outside to look for her. She was gone.
3: Nobody saw her leave, Mr. Kelby?
4: Not that I know of. Maybe some of our nosy neighbors, I don't know. How about your stepson? Wasn't he around Sunday night? Bruce? No. Went out to a show. Some other kids. When did he get back from the show? About ten, I think. Why? Where's your stepson now? Who are you looking for, my wife or my stepson? Both, Mr. Kelby. Where's your stepson? Gone. I took him over to my sister's in Alhambra. Been feeling bad since his mother disappeared. Figured the change would do him good.
3: When did you take him over your sister's, Kelby? This afternoon.
4: What's that got to do with it?
3: We'd like to talk to Bruce.
4: No, no, I can't allow it. The boy's too upset. I can't allow it. I'm afraid you're gonna have to allow it. Listen, mister, you can get off this property right now. No cop's giving me sass. Nobody's
3: giving you sass, Kelby. We want to talk to your stepson, that's all. He might give us a clue as to the whereabouts of your wife.
4: And I say you can't see the boy. Oh, you cops couldn't find thorns in a rose patch. I'll get somebody else to look for Agnes. It's my business anyway. Nobody else's. It's our business, too, if anything's happened to her. What are you talking about? You better get your coat, Mr. Kelby. We're taking you in for questioning. You come through that gate, and I'm going to let these dogs go accidentally. I'd hate to shoot the dogs. i go on in the house and get your coat.
3: Eric Kelby turned and made his way up the path and into the house. Five minutes later, he came out. Without a word to either of us, he came down the path, closed the gate behind him, and got into our car. On the way back to headquarters, he chatted pleasantly about the weather, the nursery business, and his dogs. When we pulled up in front of the city hall, we met the reason for his sudden change in temperament. His lawyer was waiting for us at the door. We took Kelby to one of the interrogation rooms. His lawyer tagged along. We tried to question him, but the lawyer objected to two out of every three questions we asked. It was hopeless, and we knew it. So did the lawyer. We released Kelby, but we did get the name and address of his sister where the stepson, Bruce, was staying. After they left, Ben and I got back in the car and drove out to Alhambra to check on the boy.
5: Forget he had this and pegged right, Joe.
4: It's a real sleeper.
3: Yeah. I'd like to know how the stepson missed that date with us this afternoon.
4: Well, if the kid called us from the house, his stepfather could have overheard him. It's
3: possible. Sister's house ought to be along this block, shouldn't
4: it? Yeah, let's see. 1408, 1406. That is, Joe, a great cottage, 1402.
3: Right. Well, that's a nice-looking little place, isn't it? Well-kept.
4: Yeah, it's a nice neighborhood. I wonder how the lot prices run out here. Somebody's coming. Yes, what
6: is it?
4: Police officers, ma'am. Are you Miss
3: Kelby?
6: Bertha Kelby, yes, that's my name. Why?
3: We talked to your brother earlier today, Miss Kelby. He said that you brought his stepson, Bruce, here to stay for a while. We'd like to see him.
6: Bruce? Yes, he was here till about, oh, an hour and a half ago. I went to the store, and when I came back, he was gone.
4: Have you any idea where he might be, Miss Kelby?
6: Well, I telephoned my brother, Eric's place, just before you came to the door. He's not there. I don't know where he might be. I'm worried about him. He seems so upset. It's business about his mother's disappearance, you know.
3: Would you mind if we came in and looked around, Miss Kelby?
6: Well, no, not at all.
3: We went in and looked the house over from one end to the other There wasn't a trace of the boy We drove back to Kelby's nursery and satisfied ourselves the boy wasn't there Then we came back to Alhambra and we kept an eye on Miss Bertha Kelby's home until midnight No one came or went At five minutes past midnight, the lights went off in the living room And a few minutes later, in the back of the house The next morning, when Ben and I checked in for work as usual at eight o'clock We met with Captain of Homicide, Frank Kearney
4: What makes you two so positive there has been any foul play in this Kelby thing? Must just it, Cap. We're not positive. It's a whole setup. It smells bad. For instance?
3: That lawyer. If a man's innocent, he doesn't need a lawyer to sit with him in the interrogation room and tell him not to answer questions. Number two, that kid's telephone call.
4: Maybe he doesn't get along with his stepfather. It happens, you know. Maybe he's trying to get back at him for something or other.
3: Maybe. Then why is Kelby hiding him out?
4: You sure he's hiding him out? No other way to take it, Cap. The Kelby woman walked away from her home Sunday night. Nobody saw her. She took nothing with her. No clothes, no luggage, no money. You checked with the family doctor? Yesterday.
3: He told us Mrs. Kelby was in perfect health. We double-checked the wanderer's file and the repeater's file in missing
4: persons. Couldn't find her name in either one. How about her relatives in town? Haven't had a chance to talk to them yet, Cap. We'll check them this morning. Well, one thing's certain. The woman couldn't have gone very far. We checked the sheriff's office, the jails, the hospitals.
3: We sent out a teletype and an APB. Every cop in the city has her description. She's been gone almost four days, but nobody's seen her. How does that add up to you?
4: It doesn't. You better move on it. Check every one of Mrs. Calby's friends and relatives. Right, Frank. Then try the neighbors. As long as I've been a cop, neighbors have been able to tell everything about anyone. <laughs> All that day, Ben and I made the rounds. First
3: stop was the Western National Bank where Mrs. Kelby maintained her account. Her savings statement showed a total balance of $31,564.17. Her separate checking account had a balance of $842.71. At the Farmers Mutual, we found the record of an insurance policy issued to Agnes Trumbull-Kelby. It was a 20-pay life policy covering the insured in the amount of $30,000. The beneficiary was listed as the insured son, Bruce Trumbull-Kelby if living upon the receipt of such due proof. If not, the insured's husband, Eric J. Kelby. By the time we finished checking her financial status, the odds were piling up fast. From only casual reports, we knew that Eric Kelby was a frugal man. If he was greedy as well, if he wanted or needed money badly enough to kill, then he had all the motives necessary to murder his wife. Maybe his stepson, too. Ben and I started to make the rounds of Mrs. Kelby's friends and relatives. Our first stop was at the apartment of Agnes Kelby's sister... A talkative maiden lady in her early 60s.
6: Agnes just isn't that kind. Oh, I'm worried sick about this. I really am. And Bruce, the poor lad, he must be heart sick. And Eric, what does Eric say about all this?
4: He says he thinks his wife left him.
6: Left him? Why, that's ridiculous. How strange.
4: Can you think of any good reason why your sister would leave Mr. Kelby?
6: I? Why, no. They had tiffs, of course, small ones. But, of course, there was that argument about Bruce... The two of them always seem to be arguing about Bruce.
4: How do you mean, ma'am?
6: Oh, well, raising the boy and all, you know. Last time I talked to them, they were tipping about whether or not Bruce should be paid for working in the nursery for Eric. And the strangest thing Eric seemed to be so upset about it all. Imagine. All on account of paying the boy a few dollars for good, honest work in that silly nursery. Well, you know, I'm the outspoken kind, and I just told Eric. Eric, I said, don't be an old meanie. Pay the boy.
3: That was the extent of the information which Mrs. Kelby's sister had to offer. Next, we called on an aunt, a Mrs. James D. Trumbull, 83 years old. She could hardly understand our questions, let alone answer them. She hadn't seen her niece, Agnes, in a year. After that, we paid a visit to one of Mrs. Kelby's friends, a Mrs. Lillian Humboldt.
6: Well, I'm sorry, Sergeant, but I can't think of any good reason why she would leave him. Unless that silly business about Bruce got out of hand. You know, maybe Eric is just Jealous
3: of the boy. Next, we called on Daisy McCloud, who worked as a day maid for Mrs. Kelby.
6: Officer, what Mr. and Mrs. Kelby thought, what they said, what they did, it's none of my business. I come in the morning, I do my work, I do it well. I'm not the nosy type, and I don't pry. I take half an hour for lunch, and when I'm through, I take my pay, and I don't expect tips, and I take the bus home. I'm not the picking through the keyhole kind, sneaking around corners, listening. But what I couldn't tell you about that man...
4: Exactly what do you mean, Miss McLeod?
6: Oh, he's a hard man, you know. They're always arguing about the boy. Bruce this, Bruce that. He's a nice boy, I think. He's never done anything to me. Oh, but the arguments. Him and her all the time. Should the boy be paid for working? Shouldn't he? Why? Why not?
3: When Ben and I finished with a list of Mrs. Kelby's friends, relatives, and employees... We started out on the neighbors. None of them saw Mrs. Kelby after 6 p.m. the night she disappeared. Two of the neighbors said they saw the porch light burning after 7 p.m., but both said the porch was empty. Mrs. Kelby was not sitting in her chair at the usual time after dinner. According to them, that was one of her habits. It was ten minutes to six by the time Ben and I got back to the office. The light was still burning in Captain Kearney's office.
4: Full day, Joe. Not a lot money. Yeah. I wonder what the captain's hanging around for. Let's find out. Anything? Pretty good luck, yeah? Good. I've got some more for you. Just walked in five minutes ago.
3: What do you mean, Frank? Who walked in?
4: Bruce Kelby. He's waiting in the next room.
3: We went in the next room and met Bruce Kelby. He was small for a 17-year-old, dark-haired and a little on the sickly side. He told us that he couldn't keep the date he made with us on the phone because his stepfather apparently did overhear the conversation and drove him directly to his sister's home in Alhambra. We asked him why he was so sure that his stepfather was responsible for his mother's sudden disappearance.
6: For one thing, all three of us usually go to the early show on Sunday night. Eric, Mom, and me. But last Sunday, Eric said he wasn't feeling good and he wanted Mom to stay home and take care of him. Then he told me to go on ahead to the show, so I did.
4: What time did you get home, son?
6: About 9.30, quarter to ten.
4: What was your stepfather doing when you got home?
6: Sitting in the living room reading the paper. Did you notice anything unusual about the way he acted? He was nervous and jumpy, more than usual, I think. Anything else? Yes, sir. When I came in through the front yard, I noticed the dogs had mud all over their paws. They'd been out somewhere in the nursery plots. And they won't go out in the plots unless Eric's with them. He doesn't want them to trample the seedlings. What would your stepfather be doing out in the nursery at night? Does he usually do some work at night? No, sir. None of the plots are even lighted. Only the greenhouses.
3: And the paths in the greenhouses are usually graveled, aren't they? No mud around.
6: It's my job to see that the greenhouse paths are kept graveled. I know they're not muddy. I I fixed them the day before, Saturday.
4: What do you think it means, son?
6: I I don't know. I I, I don't want to think about it. I, I just know he's done something. He's done something to her.
4: Did your stepfather give you any reason for keeping you away from the police officers the other day?
6: No, sir. He said people were getting nosy, and he said it might be better for me over at Aunt Bertha's. She's his sister.
4: Do you think your Aunt Bertha might know where your mother is?
6: No, we hardly ever see her. We don't know her well at all.
4: We've heard your mother and your stepfather argued about whether you should be paid for your work in the nursery.
6: When I started to work for him, he promised he'd pay me. I was saving up to buy a 31 Model A And then after a couple of months, when he didn't pay me, I asked him. He told me I ought to be glad to work for him for nothing.
4: And your mother argued with him over that?
6: Sure. It was her money that bought the nursery anyway. How'd you get away from your aunt's place last night? Well, Bertha had some shopping to do, and she left me alone. She locked the door to my room. Even the screen over the window in my room was nailed down, but I kicked it out and got away. I uh, stayed at a friend's house last night.
4: Thought about where you're going to stay tonight?
6: I don't know. But I'm not going home. And I'm not going back to Bertha's place, either. I'll get a room.
4: How'd you like to stay at my house a few days?
6: Sure nice of you, sir. Maybe I'd better not. Mom might
4: not like it. Oh, I'll take care of that. Now let's hop out and get some dinner.
6: Sure darn nice of you, sir.
4: All right, son. Come with me. What do you think, Joe? Joe? He could be lying. Yeah. Now what, Cap? Shall we bring Kelby in again? No, not yet. He's found out by now from his sister that the boy's gone. He probably figures the police station is the first place he'd come.
3: Wouldn't do much good pulling him in now, Ben. We couldn't even question him. Tend to one, his lawyer would be waiting for us when we got back.
4: That's the problem. How do we get to this Kelby without his lawyer finding out? Well, what about the early morning, Cap? Say tomorrow, about 5 or 6 a.m. Think you'd be looking for us then? Yeah, that might do it.
3: We can just get by that pack of hounds he owns without waking the whole neighborhood. Might work. If we
4: could just question him alone, I got an idea it wouldn't take much to make him cop out. All right, give it a try. Get out there in the early morning and bring him in for questioning as quietly as possible. I'll be in at 6 a.m. If you want me before then, call me at home. All right, Frank. Kelby's got a smart lawyer. It's going to be plenty hard to convict him without a body and corroborating evidence. He's got four acres out there, Cap. You can hide a lot of bodies in four acres. Well, that's what I mean. This case isn't ending. It's just beginning.
3: The next morning, Ben and I met at the office about a few minutes past 4 a.m. We had a cup of coffee and a donut at an all-night restaurant, and then we started for the Kelby place out on Belasco Road. We took four pounds of fresh horse meat with us to keep the dogs quiet if they raised a fuss. It was 28 minutes past four when Ben pulled the car to a stop a few hundred feet from the gate to the Kelby nursery. We got out of the car and made our way down the road to the gate. I reached in and tried the latch. It was padlocked. The dogs started in. Okay, Ben. Looks like we'll have to jump the fence. Toss some of that horse meat over to him.
4: Yeah. Here. Here.
3: Here. That's it. Come on, let's climb.
4: Keep an eye on those hounds. Looks like they could chew your leg off. Yeah. Here comes a third one, Ben. Toss some more meat. Yeah. There you are, boy. Go get it. Go get it, boy. Here.
3: Look, Ben, lights going on in the house. Come on, let's make it fast.
4: Who is it? Who's there? I'll set the dogs on you.
3: Police officers, Mr. Kelby.
4: What? What are you doing out here this time of night?
3: You're under arrest,
4: Kelby. Get your coat. You cops are asking for a peck of trouble. Get your coat. Where's my stepson? What have you done with him? What have you done with your wife? You're going to pay for this. I'll have your jobs. That's not the first time we heard that, Kelby. Let's go. Lights burning in the captain's office. Yeah. All right,
3: Kelby, in here. Wait pay for this. Mark my word. Ben, take him in the office here and stay with him.
4: I'll see if Frank's in yet. Roger. Come on, Kelby, inside. Friday?
2: Did
4: you bring in Calby. He's down in the interrogation room. Ben's with him. Somebody saw you? Don't think so. They must have. Calby's lawyer's sitting in the next room.
3: Kelby again refused to answer any questions without the advice of his attorney. We released him. That day, Captain Kearney sent out two men to keep an eye on the nursery and report on all of Kelby's movements. Shortly after 7 o'clock that night, just after nightfall, we tried once again to bring in Kelby for questioning without his lawyer's knowledge. It didn't work. A little after we booked him, his lawyer obtained a writ of habeas corpus. We had to release him again. The two men assigned to stake out the Kelby place reported definitely that somebody was tipping the lawyer whenever unknown visitors showed up at the nursery and drove off with Kelby. There was nothing we could do about it. The next morning, Kearney came up with a lead.
4: I had a long talk with the boy last night. Accidentally, I think he's given us a pretty good lead. Yeah? There's only one way we'll ever get a conviction. That's by finding the body and evidence to tie Kelby in.
3: Yeah, that'll do it. Where do we start looking?
4: In a new rose bed next to one of the greenhouses in Kelby's nursery. Hmm? The kid came up with it last night. How come? First, Kelby's crazy about saving a dollar and making one. Yeah, yeah. In the nursery trade, especially where you have a limited area to work in, like Kelby, you cultivate every foot of ground. Every bit of soil you've got is planted with something. Mm-hmm. Kelby's not the type to waste anything. Especially he's not the kind that would let ground life fallow when he could plant something that might bring in a few dollars next season. Bruce tells me his stepfather has every inch of those four acres planted. Every inch. Except a six-by-nine-foot plot of ground in that rose garden.
3: Well, that sounds like a long shot to me, Frank.
4: The boy said he prepared that piece of ground for planting late Saturday afternoon. His stepfather wanted it ready for Sunday morning. The plot of ground's still vacant. Might have planted it yesterday, Cap. When's the last time you checked? Mm, before I came to work this morning. I called the men on stakeout out next to the nursery. They told me the plot's still empty.
3: Mm-hmm. It's worth a chance, Frank. When do we look
4: it over? Tonight. I don't want Kelby or his lawyer to know a thing until we find that body. Well, how are we going to work it? We'll order up a crew from the crime lab. They can take probings through that plot and all around it. They can tell us without any guesswork how deep that ground's been worked over lately.
3: When do you want to start?
4: Be here in the office at 8.30 tonight. If my hunches are any good, we'll find a body.
3: It was ten minutes past nine that night when we got to the Kelby place. Lieutenant Lee Jones and his assistants, Kearney... Ben and two other men from Homicide. The men on stakeout told us that Kelby had left about 20 minutes before in a dark blue coop. Ben brought along the usual supply of horse meat for the dogs, so we didn't have any trouble there. We found the empty plot of ground in the rose bed next to the greenhouse, exactly as Bruce described
4: it to Kearney. Ground's
5: been worked over all right, boys. At least four to five feet down.
4: All right, Lee, let's start digging. Romero, take care of the dogs. Watson, grab one of these shovels. Right, Captain. Hey, you mm. said these dogs were vicious, didn't he? Yeah, why? Look at these hounds. They're no more vicious than a lively soul. Look.
1: Higgins, get that light over here, will you? Thanks.
4: What is it, Lee? Let me see. Teeth. set of false teeth. Been in the ground long? Don't think so, judging from the shape they're in. How far down would you say you A
1: couple of feet. ground's real soft.
5: Lee, come here a minute.
1: What is it?
4: body. Here's the shoulder. All right, you men over here with Watson, get the dirt off the face. Romero, you got a picture of the Kelby woman? Yeah, i cap it. Let's see. I'll hear you. Thanks. Get the light down here.
3: are paid off, Frank? That's her. Ben and I went back to the car and notified communications to broadcast a want for murder on Eric Kelby. His description, together with the description of the car and license number of the car he was driving, was rebroadcast every 15 minutes. Then we went back to check the house. We found the front door unlocked. We went inside and looked around. In one bedroom, we found clothes scattered over the bed and the floor. There was only one old suit remaining in the closet. On the table next to the bed, we found an airline's timetable. We got to the phone and notified communications to alert all police details at railroad stations, bus terminals, and airlines, and then to send out an APB on the teletype. After that, we checked with the airlines. One of them told us that a man answering Kelby's description had booked passage for Mexico City. The plane was scheduled to take off at 10.40 that night from Burbank Airport. Ben's watch said four minutes past ten. We called the detail at the airport and alerted them. Then we drove over to check in person. It was 10.35 p.m. when Ben and I took up our positions just inside Gate 3, where passengers were boarding Flight 72 for Mexico City.
4: He's cutting it close, Joe. Got about four minutes
3: more to make that plane. We waited. The crowd got thicker as departure time came closer. At ten thirty-nine, Eric Kelby came through the main entrance, across the terminal, through Gate Three,
4: into a pair of handcuffs. Ah, I don't understand. What does this mean? We found your wife's body, Kelby. What? I don't know what you're talking about. In the rose patch next to the greenhouse. Your lawyer can't help this time. Mexico City. Would have been a nice trip. Expensive. I'll plead insanity. I didn't know what I was doing. be a nice vacation next year, Joe, Mexico City. I'm going to talk to my wife about it. I didn't mean it. She slapped me. We were arguing about the boy. I didn't mean it. I don't know if you did or not, Kelby, but you killed her.
3: Come on. You missed your plane.
1: The story you have just heard is true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent.
2: Eric Kelby was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. He is now awaiting execution in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary. You have just heard the 14th in a new series of authentic cases transcribed from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of W.A. Wharton, Acting Chief of Police, Los Angeles Police Department.
1: Tonight's program is dedicated to William J. Weston, Jr. of the Washington, D.C. Police Department, who on the evening of March 4th, 1945, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. <laughs> Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. If you enjoyed tonight's production of Dragnet, you'll want to listen to Richard Diamond, private detective as played by the screen's romantic tough guy, Dick Powell. The Pet Milk Show, usually heard at this time, has moved to
3: a new time period on Sunday nights. Be sure to hear Larry Douglas and Kay Armin on the new Pet Milk Show, tomorrow night on NBC.
1: This is NBC, the National Broadcasting Company.
0: Welcome back. I have to admit that I'd forgotten that Harry Morgan played a captain in this episode. Of course, in early Dragnet, it's odd to have a different captain, because for every episode, they've reported to Ed Backstrand, regardless of what division they're in. But that would ultimately change. Friday and his partner would continue to switch divisions from week to week, but the name of the captain would change as well. It's not really a question of realism, but how you do unrealism. I guess there could be an argument that if you're going to have the detectives hopping around from division to division, they might as well have the same captain every week. But I guess it was a decision that the series would compromise on reality in the name of telling more of the stories of the LAPD rather than just, you know, what happened in a division like Homicide, while not leaving the public under the impression that there's only one captain down at the station who's in charge of everything. Uh, Of course, we get uh, pre-Miranda ruling attempts to question our suspect without his lawyer present, and to be fair, I'm not certain that not having the lawyer would have helped as much as they thought, as this guy seemed pretty cagey and was not going to give them anything regardless of whether a lawyer was present. Well, it's not a bad episode, and it's interesting for Harry Morgan playing a captain. If for no other reason, it's probably one of the weaker missing person cases. Uh, we had a criminal who was acting obviously guilty, and whose attempts to conceal the crime were clumsy at best. Hiding a body in the nursery with his occupation was kind of obvious, and... I'm not planting it there. I mean, he did everything but put a big X over it. And while that might have been what happened in the real life case, it doesn't necessarily make for compelling radio. Well, we turn now to listener comments and feedback, and we start with an email from Julie who writes, Wow, what gut-wrenching episodes. And this is referring to Dragnet as well as the first half of the Guy Fawkes episode. The whole time on the Dragnet episode, uh, Police Academy, I kept thinking, surely they won't let this guy die after all that. Uh, his wife's been through enough. Ugh, oh, they shouldn't have let him go in the first place. Did they get in trouble for that? Friday's deadpan voice makes it seems like he has no emotion. And we know it's not true, but man, what a sad ending. Well, it's not stated whether they ended up getting into trouble. I shouldn't think so because it's not like the guy was a civilian at the point that he went with them, or necessarily that they had any reason to specifically think that there would be life threatening danger. It was just one of those unforeseen tragedies that happen. And that's one thing I'll say for Dragnet is that they never glamorized. Uh, the police work, nor did they minimize the risk. And it, it's really a a somewhat interesting phenomena because I think when people are recruiting, you know, there's that stereotypical recruiter thing where you play up all the benefits, where you make it sound as exciting as possible. You know, the stereotypical, and I'm not saying that this is the case with all naval recruiters, but you know, you have the stereotype of the military recruiter who sells joining the Navy as like taking a cruise, and they never focus a whole lot on how hard and miserable boot camp is going to be, and all the challenges you're going to have in military life. Dragnet is almost anti-recruitment. It is telling you, being on the police force is a dangerous and thankless job. It is full of downsides, it's full of missed meals, aching feet, boredom, drudgery, and domestic challenges. And yet, there were so many people who became police officers as a result of watching and listening to Dragnet. And so many became... EMSs as a result of emergency, which in like manner portrayed all of the challenges and difficulties that came with that job. And I think the power of Dragnet is that it tells that story, but to the right people, it speaks to a deeper desire. A desire not just to, you know, collect a comfy paycheck, enjoy good benefits, and have a nice retirement, but a desire to live a life where what you do actually matters and is important and is necessary to serve others. And that's really the great paradox of Dragnet. Regarding the episode, the 5th of November, Julie writes. Then the Sherlock Holmes episode, so excellent and timely, but then I kept thinking of how that poor cousin felt. Out for a lark with his beloved cousin, going to have some fun, and oops, turned out your cousin had an elaborate plot to murder you. Anyway, thanks for getting my emotions all in a tangled ball, Adam. I love your podcast. It's my favorite. High five from Georgia. Well, thank you so much, Julie. Uh, And I I think that the way that Sherlock Holmes was written for the radio, uh, particularly during that era, was kind of in a cozy mystery way. And, you know, in that way... You, They don't want you to think too seriously or too deeply about what's happening and what it would really mean if that was going on uh, to someone in real life. I mean, some mysteries, if you experience them, when you're in the right frame of mind and right mood, it's just a fun experience of watching how it gets resolved and how the mystery unfolds. But, if you experience it at a time when you think about it too seriously, then it all feels a bit more dark and sad. And I can definitely see where you're coming from with that. Because, yeah, poor guy Falkenberry, just having a good time. It's never fun to find out that a member of your family wants to murder you. Thanks so much for the email, Julie. And now it is time to thank our Patreon supporter of the day. And I want to thank Peter. Peter has been one of our Patreon supporters since April of 2020. Currently supporting the podcast at the shameless level of $4 or more per month. Thank you so much for your support, Peter. And that will do it for today. If you are enjoying the podcast, please follow us using your favorite podcast software. Be sure to rate and review the podcast wherever you download it from. We will be back next Saturday with another episode of Dragnet. And tomorrow, go to videotheater.greatdetectives.net or to our YouTube channel at youtube.greatdetectives.net. The final new Public Domain Video Theater of the Year, an episode of U.S. Marshall. But also, back tomorrow, we will have our Thanksgiving special where... Wish I could have you, Miss Brooks.
6: It's all right, Mr. Murphy. Come on, Sonny.
0: The settlement house here is pretty badly
5: undermined. A cleaning woman will be back tomorrow. She might know something about the bar here. But in this
6: neighborhood... Well, thanks again. Come on, Sonny. Car is parked over this way. Brooksy! Well, it's about time you Come on, you get got... out of the street, you and the kid. What? Never mind, any place. Here, duck in the alley. What? In this neighborhood, Angel, I don't want to... Who's that? I don't
4: know. Packing crate. She can't see. He's gone now.
6: George, what's happened? What's going on?
4: Simple, Brooksy. Nice, simple case. My guess is the kid here was an eyewitness to murder. It'll be a simple case if he isn't murdered.
0: I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram. Instagram Instagram.com slash greatdetectives from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.